0: Uh, there is an essay here called uh, Waiting for Emancipation Between Slavery and Freedom in West Africa. There are two essays here which are far better than this lecture is going to be. Okay? So, I mean, this is a point where you really should read. I know that you're basically reluctant to do that. This essay is actually uh, developed from a talk that I gave in New Orleans in 1996. I've never published it, it's not available anywhere else. And I was reading it this morning and I thought, shit, it's really good. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is, we're talking about slavery and freedom. We're talking about Africa and Europe. I mean, these are questions of enormous uh, passion. And, and great subtlety, in fact. So, and I feel that in this essay, I actually managed to, to deal to some extent with that subtlety, and I know that I won't be able to do it here. So, you know, you get the kind of cartoon version here. Uh, but if you're serious, you should read this. Another one is it's called CLR James. Uh, and the idea of African Revolution. Those two essays, you know, between them, cover far more than I'll be able to cover in this lecture. I always say that that C. L. R. James is my mentor, which is surprising because I only spent two years in his company and I also, as you know from previous lectures, had uh, Jack Goody and and some other famous uh, anthropologists as my teachers over a very long period, and from whom I learned a great deal. But there is a a sense for me in which all the work that I've done as a mature anthropologist was formed in my encounter with C.L.R. James in the 1980s. And I say he's my mentor because I, I, you know, I just believe that I learn more from him than anybody else. In fact, it all came about uh, as a result of uh, what J- uh, James Joyce used to call an epiphany, uh, some kind of blinding light, you know, like uh soul on the road to Damascus or whatever. I was at a, in a, a hotel on the north beach of Jamaica. I, I spent two years in Jamaica in the mid-80s, uh, establishing a, a graduate school for social science in the Caribbean region as a whole. And I had my daughter, who was about 12, with me. And we went to this hotel, which used to be a house owned by Errol Flynn. You know, who is a famous swashbuckling Hollywood actor. And uh, I was reading a book that had just come out, which was by, edited by Anna Grimshaw, who fairly shortly after this event became my partner. And it was called CLR James on Cricket. And uh, uh, CLR James uh, had been in England and uh, in, in the 1930s, and he was the second string cricket reporter for the Manchester Guardian. And I was reading this book, and my daughter was playing on the edge of a turquoise sea, and you know, it was just incredibly beautiful. I'm reading this thing, and, and, and it reproduces everything ever published on cricket. And I'm reading I'm reading reports of yesterday's cricket from a match in the 1930s, Lancashire versus Leicestershire or something like that. So I'm reading about my father's cricket heroes, like it's yesterday's news, in this place with my daughter playing next to a turquoise sea in Errol Flynn's house. And I had this epiphany, this sense of time and space being collapsed and i felt a tremendous sense of identity with this old black man who was still alive but already in his 80s by then and i wrote him i wrote the only fan letter i've ever written in my life to him i'd read most of the things he'd written and i was teaching in jamaica for the caribbean and I felt that everything that he'd written was, in some way, personally for me. He writes, is an absolutely dream writer. But mostly, I felt he, you know, he had been in the area that I had grown up, in Manchester. Uh, he'd been to Africa, I'd been to Africa, he'd lived in America, I'd lived in America. Uh, he came from the Caribbean, I was now in the Caribbean. And I had this sense of the kind of North Atlantic quadrilateral that links Europe and Africa and North America and the Caribbean. And I thought of him moving at very different times and with a very different social trajectory. Uh, but I also felt that I had, uh, had, had made similar movements but in different directions and sequence and uh, certainly from different origins and so on. And I arrived, uh, not at this moment, but I was thinking about it, at uh, the idea of a cubist perspective. You know, the, the idea that, that, that you don't just sit in one place and see the world as a Renaissance Italian painter would see it, but you live in a world of movement in which it's possible to insert yourself at different points, and sometimes in more than one point at the same time, which is what cubism is all about. So I had this flash, you see, and, and I wrote to him, and as a result, I spent two years with him, and, and in uh, South London. And he died in uh, 1989, at the age of uh, 88. And uh, a week before he died, we, he and I were watching television, uh, watching Tiananmen Square on television. This was April 1989. The students, as you know, uh, made a demonstration in the main square in Beijing at a time when there was an international meeting. And this uh, the whole world was watching on television. and at one point a guy managed to uh, just step in front of a line of tanks and and stop them <laughs> uh, he's still in jail i think uh, anyway we're watching this and the whole world is watching this thing gorbachev who was uh, started perestroika who was coming to the meeting and james just kind of looks at this and he says, well, the Chinese will put this down easily, he said. But the Russians won't hold on to Eastern Europe after this. <laughs> and then uh, six months later, the Berlin Wall came down. And James, James spent his whole life studying revolution and seeking to practice it. And in fact, he wrote uh, the first historical account of the Fourth International the Trotskyist movement, a uh, book that came out in 1936 called the World <coughs> Revolution. And from the 1970s, he argued that there are only two world revolutions left. And the first of these would be the Second Russian Revolution, and the final revolution would be the Second American <coughs> Revolution. So, From the 70s, he was looking for signs of the Second Russian Revolution. He was very excited by the Solidarity Movement in Poland, which he talked of quite a lot. But in fact, he didn't live to see uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was something in which he had a tremendous investment, because when he was writing and doing the research for the black Jacobins in Paris, in the 30s, he was dodging assassins' bullets from Stalinist spies and, and others in Paris. I mean, it was a very hot time in the 1930s. and He was the most prominent anti-Stalinist uh, left figure in Britain at the time. And of course, the idea of whether or not what happened in 1989 was the second Russian Revolution is one that becomes more uh, confusing over time, but then the question that I have been asking since the Arab Spring is whether developments in the Middle East constitute the beginning of the second American revolution, especially since the American empire depends very heavily on its Middle East ties, if you like. So some of these things you will find in, in this essay. So who was CLR James? He was a tall, very handsome black man from Trinidad. He came from the, the emancipated lower middle class. His, his father uh, was a teacher uh, in a small rural school. One of his uncles was a railway driver. Which was. I mean, Trinidad has a social structure which is quite similar to Natal. In other words, it has a, 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 a sugar plantation system that brought in a large number of black people as slaves and then when the, uh, uh, the slave system uh, dried up, they imported large numbers of Indian uh, indentured laborers. So the society is very much divided between a, a white elite and uh, uh, the descendants of African slaves and Indian indentured laborers. Uh, He went to the best school, he was very bright, he was also a very keen sportsman. He saw quite early that there was a trap awaiting for him through his uh, performance in secondary school, I mean, what happened then if you were a bright uh, black kid and pleased your teachers, you, you got a scholarship to, to London usually and you did a degree in medicine or the law and came back and practiced it. That was the path for him. But he saw quite early that he wanted to bypass this British system of colonial patronage. He didn't agree to go to Britain for a university degree. He also learned French. He saw French as as a way around the British system. At least the French weren't British, they might be. So and, and in fact, when the Haitian Revolution, which is the subject of the black uh, Jacobins occurred, some of the Creole landowners and slave owners moved. From uh, Saint Domingue, or Haiti, to Trinidad. In fact, some of his best friends were were in fact people who still practice French in their family. Ralph de La Boisier, He and his friends uh, saw uh, literature as a means of emancipation, and they formed writers' clubs. and uh, They called they, they founded something called the Beacon, which was an association of novelists and short story writers and poets. And he was one of these people. He was also, when he left school, a sports writer. He was a very keen cricketer, uh, but he was also a sports journalist. (coughs) And then when he was uh, 30, or just over 30, he went to England for the first time. (laughs) And when he arrived in uh, London, the first thing he did was to go to Bloomsbury, which was where uh, David Sitwell and Maynard Keynes and, and a whole bunch of uh, upper class artistic artists and literati hung out. in the Bloomsbury Circle is uh, very well known. I mean, it's uh, there's even a press still called Bloomsbury. So he went there and he wrote wrote back. Uh, To the Port of Spain Gazette saying, you know, little did they know that this well educated black man could put them in their place. (laughs) And uh, he's a very arrogant guy. Well, I guess you've got to be if you end up doing what he did. (laughs) But what happened between 1932 and 1938 is extraordinary. I mean, when he arrived in England, he had a novel in his luggage which was published soon, called Minty Alley. It was the first Caribbean novel about uh, urban poor populations in the Caribbean. After that, there were set many more examples of this, but his was the first. He published uh, a study of um, uh, a labor organizer called Captain Cipriani in Trinidad, which was published as The Case for West Indian Self-Government. Let me say something about where he went, I mean, after being in, I mean, he once told me about his first visit to London, it's, you should get some sense that in the, 90, in, between the wars, uh, the resistance, the anti-colonial resistance movement, people only really met in London or Paris, I and mean, they didn't meet uh, except in, 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 in the centre. and. Uh, Uh, He told me a story. Soon after he arrived, he was in a a, in a taxi with an Irish revolutionary and an Indian revolutionary. And they were passing the House of Parliament. And the Irishman said, I'd like to blow the fucking place up. (laughs) And, And the Indian then proceeded with an extremely erudite account of the 50 revolutions that occurred in India between 1850 and 1900. And James, he just out of Trinidad, you know, and he's sitting there saying, Jesus, you mean violence might have something to do with this thing? <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> we might actually be fighting a war with these people? But i never thought of that. I mean, you know, that it was a very different situation. And this Indian, he said, Jesus, you know, I mean, where did he get all that stuff about revolution? I mean, I've obviously got to you know wise up fast. So this this little episode in a taxi cab also reveals what the, the the anti-colonial movement in different places got from each other. I'm sure there were Afrikaners in in London at the same time also planning to blow up the British. And in fact. Uh, the Irish, the uh, South Africans and the Canadians. I mean you think of Canadians, they wouldn't say boo to a goose, but actually they were fighting for their independence in the 1930s also. And the Canadians and the South Africans and uh, the Indians, uh, sorry, Indians too, and the Irish used to meet at, at the uh, uh, annual uh, Imperial conferences of the British Empire. And they would kind of miss all the main meetings and go into some side room and plot what they were going to do to undermine the British Empire. So there's all this stuff going on. But he obviously didn't have any money, so he had to go to uh, Lancashire in Northern England, where the most famous cricketer in the world at the time was uh, Trinidadian cricketer called Leary Constantine. And he played as a professional cricketer in the Lancashire League in a place called Nelson, which was also called Little Moscow because of the uh, extreme radicalism of the working class there. And James basically went to live with him. Constantine was invited out to speak quite a lot on the colonial question and so on, so he sent James instead. And uh, this was the first time in uh, James's life, that he read any Marxist text. He'd never read anything by any Marxist before, and he's already in his early thirties. And he was just incredibly lucky, or smart, I don't know. But the first text that he read was Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution. Now this is a book 1,300 pages that covers the events from February to October, 1917, in St. Petersburg, and Moscow. 1,300 pages on nine months' history, and I mean, sometimes you get 40 pages on a meeting that took place one afternoon in which Trotsky was himself a protagonist. But the main thing about this book is that it tells the story through the three leading characters, Lenin, Trotsky, and uh, Stalin. I mean, what's great about this book, I mean, it really is, I mean, it is sensationally good, this book, is that it's personalized history. It tells the Marxist story through a history that is personalized. And this is, I mean, this is the model for the black jacobins. The black jacobins is the story of the slave revolution uh, in what became Haiti uh, between uh, the early 1790s and the uh, mid-first decade of the uh, 19th century. It's the only successful slave revolution in history. Before James wrote his book, this revolution had dropped out of collective knowledge. Nobody knew anything about it. I mean, according to James, and I would support him in this, the Haitian Revolution was at least as important for world history as the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Essentially, what happened was that Uh, After the French Revolution, in 1791, the slaves moved against their masters in the name of the principles of the French Revolution. I mean, as with the Russian Revolution, all the principal powers in in the region, the Americans, the Spanish, the British, the French, they all moved against this slave Uh, revolution, just as they did, 17 countries sent armies to defeat the Russian revolution after 1917. Uh, The British sent the largest army that they have ever sent. It was the largest expeditionary force in British history. 50,000 men. This was in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, remember. This is when Britain was fighting France for world domination. They sent 50,000 men to Haiti to put down the slave revolution, and all of them died, all of them. They died partly because of defeat in battle, partly because of malaria, partly because they just couldn't supply themselves in that situation. It was one of the most tremendous defeats in British history. And it completely changed the nature of Brit- the British Empire and its orientation. Until then, the Americas, the American colonies and the Caribbean were the main focus of British imperial interest. The, the West Indies sugar industry and, its, uh, and the slave trade around it were the, the main focus of British politics and interest. The West India lobby dominated Parliament. I mean, they weren't just in Jamaica and places like that. They had their estates in Hampshire, they were MPs, they were in the city of London. I mean, the whole complex of British political economy in the late 18th century was dominated by the West Indies' plantations. And uh, the American Revolution was bad enough. I mean, that was the first sign that maintaining the Western Empire was on the threat. But the Haitian Revolution was absolutely decisive. The Prime Minister at the time was William Pitt. In fact, he was Prime Minister at the age of 23, you'd be interested to know. But he did have an advantage, his dad had been the Prime Minister before. But Pitt, at this point, decided we have to pull the plug on the Western imperial interest and shift our interest east, especially to India. And people like Wordsworth, you know, the famous Romantic poet, wrote uh, sonnets uh, praising the the slave leader uh, Toussaint Louverture, who is uh, of course the hero of Toussaint means All Saints, uh, Louverture means the opening. <laughs> And the three figures in, 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 in James's book that uh, correspond to Lenin, uh, Trotsky and Stalin are uh, Toussaint, uh, Christoph and Dessaline. Dessaline is the kind of hard military type. Toussaint Louverture is an amazing character and at a certain point he decided that he would separate himself from the revolution and go uh, to France to negotiate with the French. He was very confident that he could work a deal with them so naturally they locked him up somewhere and he died some years later. These other two then took over And uh, the Haitian state was formally declared in 1804, but the French insisted on huge reparations for their losses in terms of property and uh, men and material. And this Haitian state was massively over-indebted from its birth and has never escaped since. It's another part of the story. Let me just finish with what James uh, achieved in the 1930s in London. He became the principal Trotskyite spokesman. This is a guy who hadn't read anything by uh, Marx in 1932. He was the principal Trotskyite spokesman. He founded newspapers. He founded with his friend George Padmore, who was also from Trinidad the International Africa Service Bureau, which was designed to uh, facilitate the African Revolution, and that included Jomo uh, Kenyatta, Kwame Nkrumah, and, and various other people who, who led the, uh, the anti colonial revolution. He also published the, the Black Jacobins and another book, that, a little book that we'll be really looking at next week, Uh, called The History of Negro Revolt. So, the first point that he was trying to develop with this book was to just to bring out into public view something that had been forgotten. He wanted to show that there had been a time when, when African slaves had changed world history. He also wanted to remind people of what slavery in the New World was like. I mean, the opening chapters of this book are shocking. Absolutely shocking. I mean, you know, slavery is always a problem because you have to suppress the humanity of somebody who is considered to be a tradable thing. And suppressing humanity on a large scale uh, requires terrorism. And, uh, you know, he describes the kind of things, you know, people who, you know, French uh, slave owners who, who would stick gunpowder up a slave's ass and light it just to, just for fun. I mean, you know, the, 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 the sheer horror and barbarity of uh, New World slavery is never more brilliantly depicted than, than here. But that's not his main interest nor is his main interest African pride. I mean he's not just writing it to show that black people once did something significant. He's writing it in the 1930s because he believes the Haitian Revolution can illuminate the coming African Revolution. When you've got to recognize in 1930s there wasn't anybody anywhere who thought that Africa was in a position to get rid of colonial empire. And certainly not the African politicians who were living in Paris and London and